Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at controversial criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the birthplace of poker and craps, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, a city named for an actual rock. Thank you for joining us for Episode 4, State of Texas versus Rodney Reed. This is a live show, and questions are always welcome. So call us at 347-989-1171. Good evening, Rodney. Uh, good, good evening, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Rodney, read on the rain. <laughs> good evening, Lisa. It's a, it's a rainy one up here. I don't know if you guys are supposed to get any of this yet, but, oh, man, it's a, it's definitely a rainy one here in Little Rock. Oh, it's clear here so far. Yeah. But who knows? I, 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 I had completely actually, as sad as this sounds, I had completely forgotten that Little Rock was actually named after a rock till you reminded me. I hadn't seen that <laughs> since. I think I saw that when I was in second grade. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I, as I've told you a couple times, I'm running out of facts. Oh, no, for a little no, while. I may have to move on to Arkansas and Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe you can mention the fact that we've uh, completely owned LSU the past few years. Oh, wait. Uh, I mean, wait, I'm no, last year. No, 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 dear. No, no, no. Our new Tiger brought us some luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Next year, that'll be our year. That's, that's our Arkansas Okay. State. Next year's our year. Yeah. Although I I do have to say, when Mike Six passed, uh, Tusk and mm-hmm. Reveille and several other mascots sent wonderful floral arrangements. And then the Arkansas LSU game that year, they actually put a banner on Tusk's trailer for Mike. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! I didn't know so, Arkansas, Arkansas is they're they're fine in my book, hey, and they're always the they're nice about the rivalry. Completely heartless. 
<laughs> right. You're not like the Gators. There you go. We hate them Gators. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody at, hates at them. Least our, at least our rivalry hasn't stooped to Texas, uh, Oklahoma levels. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, we just fight over a boot. Go. There you go. Which are apparently our states look like, and one of our mm-hmm. actually, from what I understand, the whole story behind that trophy is one of our uh, radio hosts here in Little Rock, David Basil, who used to play for Arkansas, actually commissioned that thing and made it. It's a gaudy looking thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but just Google the boot if you've ever not seen it. It's kind of uh huh. I don't oh, have to Lord. do that. But we're not talking about we're not talking about Arkansas or Louisiana tonight. We're talking about uh we're talking about the state of Texas and Rodney Reed, a crime that was committed quite a while ago, you know, uh I believe what was it, nineteen ninety two? Nineteen ninety six. April twenty third. Okay. Yes. Uh Stacy Stites was a young woman. She was engaged to a police officer in Giddings, Texas, by the name of Jimmy Finnell. Uh, one, she worked an early morning shift at the uh, H-E-B uh, grocery store in Bastrop, which is about 35 miles from Giddings. She left her apartment to go to her early morning shift. She was scheduled to be at work at 3.30, and she never showed up for work. About 6.30 in the morning, H-E-B called her mother because her mother was her contact and said, is Stacy at home? Did something happen? And her mom called upstairs to Jimmy in Stacy's apartment, and Jimmy, of course, said, no, she's not here. So then they began the search for her, and about 3 in the afternoon, her body was found off a rural dirt road in an area known locally as Lost Pines, and that was in Bastrop, but it was more out in Bastrop County rather than within the city limits of Bastrop. Right, right. And, so let's um, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so that was, that was the beginning of the case. It was a year, or almost a year, before a suspect was identified, and that was through DNA testing. And DNA evidence that was recovered from Stacy's body. So let's go ahead and look at the murder scene. What exactly? Go ahead and paint us the picture of what happened, uh, and you know what at least the proven in court claim is for what happened with Stacy that night. Right. Well, uh, as I said, we don't know. Uh, you know, we don't know 100% because she left for work at 3 o'clock in the morning. Jimmy Finnell was asleep. So he wasn't up, didn't see her leave, and frankly, whatever he said would be suspect because he is the, the prime suspect in a situation like that. Uh, but her partially clothed body was found on the side of a road. She had been raped and strangled with a belt. Um, the what led them to suspect rape was that the zipper on her pants was broken, her underwear were bunched around her hips, and they were wet. And um, she had uh, 
no shirt on. She just had her bra on. Right. Um, and so, I mean, that led to the conclusion of she may have been sexually assaulted, which was confirmed at autopsy. They found right. saliva on her breasts. They found semen uh, in her underwear. They found semen internally. Uh, they were intact, which means the heads and tails were still attached. And generally, in a live person who's walking around, bathing, showering, urinating, live sperm don't stick around that long. Right. Um, you tend to you only find them intact if the body's been laying prone or supine in one place and not moving around. So um, they did pursue Jimmy Finnell as a suspect, but one mm-hmm. of the other problems was is the truck that Stacy was driving was found mm-hmm. at the Bastrop High School at 5.23 mm-hmm. in the morning. Right. Which was not a convenient location for Jimmy Finnell to leave the truck because it's 35 miles from Bastrop to Giddings. He would have to do like four-minute miles right, right. to be able to get back to, to, to go 35 miles on foot. Right. That would be insane. <laughs> right. Well, I guess and, that would be um, insane, but it'd be unheard of to keep up with it, that kind of pace I, for 35 miles. Correct. Because it, the mother... Stacy's mother calls him at six, between six thirty and six forty-five. So that's just a little bit under an hour, or a little bit over an hour, for him to get from Bastrop back to getting thirty-five miles. Uh-huh. It's it's not impossible, but it's not probable. Right. Uh, but right. the Texas Rangers. I don't, think I, know I don't think I know anyone whether they just can. Committed a murder or not going to be able to run 35 miles in an hour. Correct. Or, or walk it in an hour because if he run 35 miles in an hour, he would have had to be sweating profusely, breathing uh-huh. heavily. His legs right. would probably be somewhat weak. Uh, yeah, you know, he wouldn't be in any physical condition to get up and go start searching for Stacy, which Absolutely. is what he did. By the time he answered his phone, he would have been out of breath, and you mm-hmm. would have been able to physically tell that he had Correct. just got done with some sort of physical activity. Right, right. And another interesting thing that um, I don't think anybody's really caught is that when he talked to people, that morning, he didn't say Stacy's dead. He said she's missing. We can't find her. Right. And he never slipped up and said she's dead. Now, as a police officer, I'm sure he feared the worst inside. Right, absolutely. But even then, he still, you know, he still said missing and not dead. Right. Which doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, it's just a something that struck me. Right. right. You would expect that if he had actually had something to do with her murder, he would have slipped up and said she's dead. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, the next thing that we have listed here is the prime suspect. Obviously, I'm sure you're referring to Rodney. Was it pretty quick no. after they were able to uh, after they were able to dismiss Jimmy? Were they able to pretty much focus in on Rodney? Well, what happened with that is actually Jimmy Finnell was the prime suspect. He was questioned very aggressively by the officers in Bastrop City Police. Bastrop Sheriff's mm-hmm. Office and Texas Rangers. Uh, and mm-hmm. he was a Giddings police officer. He had worked in Bastrop County as a jailer, but he didn't really have any relationships with Bastrop City detectives, Bastrop County Sheriff's detectives, or Texas Rangers. So it's not like he was a buddy and they were like, okay, we don't want to do this, but we, you know, we got to. They were very aggressive, very tough with him. They accused him of killing Stacy. Um, at one point, he ended up exercising his Miranda rights because right. it had been seven, seven months or nine months. They didn't have any other leads, and all they were doing was accusing him. And so he decided to you know, invoke his rights and if they'd wanted to talk to him again, he would have gotten an attorney. Right, right, absolutely. And, and go ahead. The one of the other things that the Texas Rangers did, they ordered the uh, patrol cars for Giddings. They ordered mileage. They checked taxis and car services in the area to see if anybody picked somebody up at Bastrop and brought them back to Giddings found nothing. So they and they couldn't identify anybody who would have helped Finnell. Right. And it would have required somebody going to pick him up in Bastrop and bring him back to Giddings. Okay. Um and that's another thing uh, I would say his cop cop buddies, he wasn't really well uh liked in the community. Well, like I said, he wasn't really, he wasn't from Bastrop. He was from another part of Texas, and I don't remember the name of that town. Again, he had worked as a jailer, and so he probably was acquainted with the officers in Bastrop City Police and Bastrop County Sheriff. But Mm -hmm. he didn't have any real relationships or friendships or social interaction with them. And I don't think it's a, he wasn't well-liked. Um, right. Because he did have friends on the Giddings Police Department where he was an officer. Um, and, I, I mean, he strikes me from, from just the things that I've read is he's one of those people that's just very closed um, and doesn't let himself get close to a lot of people. He kind of keeps people at arm's length. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't know why that would be, but that's the impression I get. Um, like I said, I don't think it was he, he was disliked per se. Um, I think that he was just a little walled off. But uh, one of the things that can be ruled out for him is Curtis Davis, his friend, did not go to Bastrop and bring him back to Giddings that night because... Curtis Davis has said, 
if Jimmy called me and said, something happened to Stacy, we got to cover this up, Curtis Davis would have said, I'm sorry, you're under arrest now. Because I'm not risking my freedom, my family, my life to help you cover up something you did. And David Hall and his wife have have testified in a writ hearing that David Hall never left the house until he went to work sometime around 5 on the morning of April 23rd. And that at 3.30 in the morning, they were dealing with their baby who had awakened screaming her head off. Uh So, you know, two of the prime candidates for, quote, helping Jimmy Finnell didn't. And I would expect if somebody had unwittingly helped him, they would have come forward long ago. Probably when Reed was arrested. Yeah. You know what? You know, I, I got a call. He was in Bastrop. He wasn't at the high school, but he was pretty close by. And, you know, he told me the truck broke down, but he just wanted me to bring him home. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, but that didn't happen. So, yeah, they, they didn't. Now, the one mistake that they did make, and I don't quite understand it exactly, is they never tried to search Jimmy Finnell's apartment. They could have done that with consent. However, you have to be careful because if you get consent and then you find incriminating evidence, when you go to try to use it at trial, the person is going to say, well, I kind of felt compelled. They told me I was a cop. I had to consent. And sometimes you get a consent search and the evidence can still be thrown out. And so in some ways it was kind of smart that they they were not trying to search without an, a search warrant with probable cause because then evidence would be more – you'd be more assured of that evidence being able to be used at a trial. But I do wish that they had – although by the same token – no one who was in that apartment in those days, and Curtis Davis was there most of the 23rd, none of them reported ever seeing anything out of place, any blood, anything broken, any evidence that there was a struggle uh, in the apartment. So I don't know that there would have been anything for them to find had they searched. Right. So let's talk about the investigation. Where did the investigation turn after Jimmy? Well, in addition to Jimmy, they looked at all of the boyfriends that Stacy had dated uh, in Corpus Christi, in Smithville, which is where she went to high school, and um, in the Bastrop area. They took DNA samples. I think it was 28 males in the investigation. And the investigation lasted from April 23, 1996, up to April 4, 1997. 
And during that time, police never went to Rodney Reed. And Rodney Reed's name never came up as a potential boyfriend at any time of Stacy. So um, they did, like I said, they I think they did a pretty good job of due diligence because they talked to people, to boyfriends she had in Corpus Christi when she was a teenager. Right. So, all right. Right, right. But they Absolutely. they found they found no there were no leads there were no you know no DNA matches. Uh, they did have DNA and they knew they had DNA. They just they didn't know who it belonged to. So after the DNA, they found it everything, and they didn't know who it was. That they I guess how did they come about Rodney and finding out it was his DNA? What happened was. Um, as you remember, Miss Vivian was raped by Rodney Reed in October of 95. They had DNA from her case. They also had DNA from a case in, I believe it was 1989 or 1987 of a 12-year-old girl in Bastrop. And they had DNA from that case. Apparently, sometime during the the process of examining the evidence, it was found that the DNA from Stacy's rape matched the DNA from Miss Vivian's rape and the DNA from the twelve year old's rape. In other words, it was like a cold case hit that all each of these rapes was probably committed by the same person. Because of Miss Vivian's rape, and they knew he was a suspect, and he may have been a suspect in a 12-year-old's rape as well, they checked with DPS to see if DPS had a reference sample for Rodney Reed, and they did. And when they ran the reference sample against Stacy's rape evidence, rape kit evidence, they found a match, and it was Rodney Reed. Right. So once they found out that, you know, they found that match, did they automatically go over there and arrest him? And then he, you know, obviously told them first that he didn't have anything to do with her. He didn't know who she was. Right. They they brought him in. He he was a drug dealer and they brought him in on a drug charge um, to question him. And, of course, he denied knowing Stacy. And uh, said he'd never seen her before, no idea who she was, just knew what he saw on the news. And so he was uh, placed under arrest. They obtained a new DNA sample from him and double-checked that. Uh, They tested DNA from his father and brothers just to be sure, you know, they they had the right person. And it, it couldn't have been maybe one of his brothers or maybe his dad. And again, they were all eliminated, and it only left Rodney Reed.
Okay, so once they decided that it was Rodney, was it pretty clear they started, uh, they started, uh, you know, obviously they arrested him immediately and so on and so forth. Did they, was there anything between the trial and anything that significantly happened between the arrest and the trial? Not, uh, not particularly, no. Um, of course, he had denied knowing Stacy at all. Um, I, you know, they had some evidentiary hearings, the attorneys. There was a lot of changing of attorneys, um, and I, I guess I should kind of touch on that. His family had apparently hired someone named Jimmy Brown to represent him. But at some point in time, they weren't able to pay Mr. Brown anymore. And so he withdrew. And I don't know what Texas rules are. Sometimes if you're retained to represent a defendant and then the defendant can no longer pay you, you can seek to be appointed by the court to continue right. to represent your client. You'll be paid based on you know whatever the court pays public defenders or, you know, uh, appointed counsel. You you won't be, be paid your usual hourly rate that you would charge to a private client, but you would still be paid something. Um, and I don't know if Texas allows attorneys to do that or not. Um, so he withdrew, and then Calvin Garvey and another attorney were appointed. And then around January of 98, one of those, the one attorney, I think his name was Jenkins, he needed to withdraw. So Garvey requested that Lydia Clay Jackson be appointed. She was appointed. The judge did continue a trial date that was set in March to give them more, a little bit more time to prepare. He only, you know, continued it to like the end of March was when they started jury selection. But it's kind of weird because the trial date, there's like a period of, of time for jury selection, and then there's a gap before the actual trial started. And I haven't been able to put together exactly what happened. Although if I ever do, I will be the first to let everybody know. Okay. <laughs> so let's go over the prosecution's case at trial. What was the what was the big what was the big you know was the DNA the cornerstone of the case? Yes, the DNA was the cornerstone of the case. It was the Cinderella slipper, uh, and it came not just from one place. It came from. Inside Stacy's body, saliva on her breast, um, and DNA from her her underwear. So that was yeah, that was a Cinderella slipper. The person who did that, you know, who belonged to that DNA, is the person who raped and murdered her. And the reason again that they thought she had been raped is because the condition in which her body was found. Um, she wasn't, you know, found 
dressed with her button up to her neck and, and prim and proper. I mean, she was found tossed out on the side of the road with a broken zipper, underwear around her hips, no shirt, only her bra on. You know, that wasn't that wasn't somebody who cared about her and who had any remorse in what they'd done. Right. Now, because she was just fair, out in the open. To be fair, yeah. a lot of people say yeah. that Jimmy, you know, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is just playing devil's advocate. A lot of people <laughs> say that her and Jimmy were having issues and that Jimmy was abusive and stuff. So with that being said, could it not be possible, you know, taking the timeline and everything out of con- out of you know your mind and everything, is that something that an abusive husband wouldn't possibly, you know, would he? Well, would he show more caring? First of all, there is no evidence that Jimmy was abusive to Stacy. Uh, Jimmy's, you know, Jimmy may have had some issues personality-wise, and he may have felt because he was older. Uh, he may have felt like he was a little bit wiser and should be able to kind of suggest how Stacy should run her life. That's not abuse. And from what Curtis Davis told CNN, which they're going to be airing the CNN episode, uh, Death Row Stories episode this Sunday, from what Curtis Davis said, Stacy was actually the one that kind of wore the pants. And if she gave Jimmy a look, Jimmy would do whatever she told him to do. And that's based on Curtis Davis's observation. Right. Carol Stacy's mother, also observed Jimmy and Stacy together, and she said they were in love. There was no problems between them. They had a good relationship. Uh, she never saw any signs of abuse. Stacy's sisters never saw any signs of abuse. I mean, these women remained friends in Jimmy's life even after her, their sister was murdered. And to this day, they care about him. Still a part of their yeah, family. That, you know, you'd think if it, he had anything if he to do had, with it. Correct. I mean, right. I can tell you, if my if my brother-in-law had ever laid a hand on my sister and then something happened to my sister, whether it was an accident natural causes or otherwise, I would not have him in my life. But my brother-in-law, no matter what happens to my sister, he's always going to be part of our family. And, you know, my mother's family was the same with my dad when they split up and even after she died. He saw them more than we did, even though technically... He wasn't part of that family anymore. So, no, I don't think Jimmy had anything to do with it. I think that the claims about abuse are being made by individuals who didn't know Stacy and didn't know Jimmy. There is no evidence of calls for service to their apartment in Giddings at any time. Uh, There is no evidence of any police intervention in Bastrop where Stacy worked with Jimmy. It's all rumors and speculation and myths 
designed to make it appear that somebody else is responsible for this murder and not the individual whose DNA was found inside and on the body. Very true, very true. So with that being said, you know, and I think we're going to bring this up. Hold on, let me look at our outline one more time. I'm not (laughs) sure whether we're going to bring this up or not, but uh, I guess we could bring it up in the defense's case. But I guess starting to jump into the defense's case, when did Rodney come up with this affair storyline, so to speak, that uh, him and – uh, him and Stacy had been carrying on a, an affair. Well, that was basically um, in his attorney's opening statement. That was a defense. Now they have they may have been pursuing that defense leading up to the trial. I know in State versus Reed, uh, Calvin Garvey, Jimmy Brown, or Lydia Clay Jackson and Jimmy Brown both claim that they had documented a relationship between Rodney and Stacy. But uh, up until the the defense opening, nobody knew that was where they were going to go. The problem with that is the rape allegations against Rodney Reed from all these prior cases made it very difficult for them to try to allege a consent defense with Stacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Rodney right. Reed had gotten on the stand and testified, or members of Rodney's family had gotten on the stand and testified, all it would have taken is for one of them to say, he's got women coming out the wazoo. He don't need to rape anybody. And every single one of those rape allegations would have come in. True. To impeach True. their their statement that he didn't need to rape anybody. Um, But I think the other problem with that is they didn't really have any witnesses who could safely testify. And the ones they chose to testify, the testimony didn't really prove a relationship. They had one witness by the name of Iris Lindley. She claimed that a girl in a gray truck came looking for Rodney Reed while she was visiting with Rodney's mother. She said her name was Stephanie at first and then corrected herself and said, I mean, Stacy. But a girl coming to look for Rodney Reed doesn't necessarily mean he's in a relationship with that girl, especially given the fact that he sold drugs. So she could have been coming to look for him to buy drugs. Also, the gray truck, Stacy did not have access to a gray truck. Stacy had a maroon truck or a red truck. Is there any and a gray car? Is there any evidence for sure about drug about uh, Stacy being addicted to any sort of drugs? No, there's zero evidence. Stacy had to have a pre-employment. That is, that is, it's not hearsay. That is a flat out lie. Stacy had a pre-employment physical with HEB and they did a drug test. 
because I believe right. she was going to work as a cashier. Mm-hmm. No drug use on her pre-employment drug test. Mm-hmm. Talk screen at autopsy. No illicit drugs. No no marijuana metabolites. No cocaine metabolites. No drugs of yep. abuse were found on her talk screen. They did a hair sample. She was drug free for the last 32 months of her life. So where did they come up with this then, and how did they get to present this into evidence, or did was that part of the Well, trial? what happened was Rodney Reed has said, and I believe in State versus Reed, he said that, oh, Stacy used to get cocaine from a guy named Ed, and she used to bring it to me to trade for weed, and then I'd sell it. Or she'd get marijuana from Ed and he'd sell it, you know, he'd trade it for cocaine and sell the weed. I don't, I'm not sure what his story was. I don't think he knows. Um, that's where part of it started. And then Reed's cousin, Chris Aldridge, said that he and Stacy and Reed used to drive around smoking crack. Right. And so that. That's where that came from. No basis in fact whatsoever. They didn't even try to present that at trial through anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And see, that's the thing. Was this the whole, I don't know, when it's presented like this, it seems like a very flimsy defense because there's no evidence to support the fact that he may have had an affair with her. It sounds just completely like, oh, I'm going to make this up because it's convenient. Right. And you've got to remember, the his initial denial, he says, oh, well, I was afraid because I'm black and she's white. Well, he's also said he always dated white women. Why wasn't he afraid when he was dating any of them? Why did it have to be such a secret with Stacy? And well, I mean, I can see the difference though because she's dating a cop. Uh, it's Texas, you know what I'm saying? I and the fact that she's married to a cop, I guess I should say instead of well, dating, no, no, she was. They no, they were engaged to be married. They were scheduled to be married on, I believe it was May 11th. 1996 was the date of their wedding, and she was killed on April 23rd, 1996. So, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, and again, if they had really been having a relationship, even if it was, quote, secret, unquote, why wouldn't his name have come up when they were investigating all these other men and all these other boyfriends that she had had in her life? Right. You know, I mean, you would expect, I would expect his name to come up some way, somewhere during that time between the murder and the DNA being identified that says Rodney Reed had a relationship with her. And 
frankly, since that's allegedly the motive and that Jimmy Fidel was knowingly framing Rodney Reed because it's been alleged dumping the car, the truck at the high school, which is convenient to Reed, not to Fennell, was to frame Reed. Well, then why doesn't he ever bring up Reed's name during all these times he's being questioned? Right. Absolutely. Granted, he would he would be giving them his motive, but he could say, you know, she was messing around with this guy, but she was going to end it, and apparently he killed her. And why would he not have pointed police right at Rodney Reed? If his whole intention right. is to frame Rodney Reed. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's not how it happened, although people, advocates portray it as being how it happened. It's not how it happened. You know, they found mm-hmm. Rodney Reed because the Cinderella, the, the excuse me, the Cinderella slipper fit him. Right. That's how they found Rodney Reed. Absolutely. And, I mean, DNA evidence is something very hard to try to overcome. I, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen DNA evidence overcame because, I mean, it's like – accurate. You know what I'm saying? Only one person can have your DNA. But DNA, something people forget is DNA is circumstantial. It proves some contact at some time between two people or a person and a location or a person and an object. But it doesn't come date stamped. So it doesn't say, okay, this semen is from April 23rd, 1996, or April 21st, 1996. Well, see, that's interesting because I never really thought about it that way. I've always thought DNA yeah. was the be all end all. People, people do look at it in some cases as a be all end all, although if the Innocence Project was going to be honest, they should be looking at it as a be-all, end-all in this case, but they're not. Mm -hmm. They're trying to argue that the person with DNA evidence inside and outside the body from semen and saliva is innocent, and the person without a speck of DNA evidence on any place or anything is guilty, and that's Jimmy Finnell. Or David Long. Well, I mean, we're talking... Depending on what day of the week you talk to him. We're talking about something until last week I didn't know that uh, was founded by the guy who partially is responsible for O.J. Simpson getting off. So, I mean, come on now. There's going to be a little bit of questionable... uh, Correct. And when, when in the early days, and probably to still today, when they get DNA testing and it further confirms guilt, they either do what they're doing in Rodney Reed's case and continue raising the same arguments and trying to get additional testing, or they slink away and they never say, "Hey, we got this testing." The system worked in this case. The guy was guilty. 
Right. The only time they ever say anything is when they can say, see, look, the system is broken. Well, the system's not broken because your guy's been exonerated. That means the system works. True, true. I see your point. It only is broken whenever it doesn't benefit them. Correct. When they, well, it's it's only broken when they don't win. Right. When they win, you know, it's all roses it's a great and unicorns and puppies. And when right. they don't, when they don't win, when they lose, then it's corrupt. And everybody's in cahoots, and it's racist, and it's, you know, sexist, and it's classist, and it's everything that's wrong with the United States. Right. You know, it's, you you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Absolutely, absolutely, completely agree with that. So, obviously, we've talked about the defense's shaky, you know, defense and the prosecution's pretty airtight case with that DNA. What, you know, obviously we know that the verdict was that Rodney was found guilty. What about the penalty phase, can you tell me? During the penalty phase, the five prior rape victims testified. And uh, contrary to the allegations of some people because the witness, those witnesses did testify and they were cross-examined by Reed's counsel there's nothing improper about considering the circumstances of their rapes to lean toward Roddy Reed's guilt as far as a private citizen like you or me discussing a case over the internet. Um, right. His MO was raping women in the wee hours of the morning. He was uh-huh. brutal and he was violent. Um, the two, there were two victims who were in relationships with Rodney Reed. One was the mother of two of his children. He raped uh-huh. her when she did not want to have sex with him after their relationship ended. Okay. And I believe he also had broken into her, her house or her mother's house and raped her in front of her children. And he was abusive throughout their relationship. And then the other was a, a girlfriend who was mentally uh, mentally challenged. And uh-huh. when she said no to Rodney Reed, he raped her and brutalized her and beat her. So being a girlfriend of Rodney Reed, even if there was a relationship between Rodney Reed and Stacy, being his girlfriend does not exempt you from a violent sexual assault that could result in your death. Hmm. Absolutely not. I'll play devil's advocate. They did have a, they did have a fling. And she Mm -hmm. met up with him, and she said, look, I'm getting ready to get married. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not right. It was fun, but I'm done. And he could have beaten, raped her, and killed her then. And would have. True. You know, I mean, and he would have had no qualms about it. 
So absolutely, uh, the guy was obviously off his rocker a little bit. Yeah, and you know the funny thing is they're they're they try to use the the rapes and the other allegations against Jimmy Finnell from 2007, which is 11 years after Stacy was murdered, as an indicator of his guilt for Stacy's murder. And yet they won't look at those rapes as an indicator of Roddy Reed's because he was never convicted in court. Well, he was he was sent to death row for Stacy's murder. Uh-huh. And generally, and a lot of states, a lot of jurisdictions do this. If they get you on the top count felony and they put your ass in prison for life or on death row, they don't pursue all the all the you know, rapes or thefts or burglaries or whatever whatever other crimes you may have committed that you hadn't been charged and convicted for at the time you were convicted. A lot of, you know, a lot because it saves on resources for trial, resources for appeal. And you're not going to be walking out of prison on a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And you're not probably going to ever walk out of a prison on a death sentence. Right, absolutely not. Hey, I mean, it's almost guaranteed unless, you know, you're one of the few, like, say, a Damien Eccles or, you know, Damien's really the only one that has gotten off a death row that comes directly to mind. But, uh, you know, there is a, you know, that is one of the situations that you think of whenever you think right. of a gentleman who had been placed to death and actually has since been released. Uh, so directly after he was sentenced to death, did we get the direct appeal? Like, was that something that was, yeah, you know, he they, filed it within pretty quick order? Death, death sentences uh, in, I think in every state, a a death penalty conviction or capital murder, first degree murder, whatever they call it, is an automatic appeal to the highest court or highest criminal court in the uh-huh. state. In this case, it was the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and they affirmed his uh, conviction and sentence on December 6, 2000. He was convicted in May of 1998, and again, his sentence was affirmed uh, by the court, by the whole court, in December of 2000. Right. And some of the issues that he raised, he raised an issue regarding the sufficiency of the evidence because it was an entirely circumstantial case. But the circumstances were strong enough. Um, the location where the truck was found, the DNA, the timeline, the truck was discovered at 523. Um, the evidence that was found inside the truck, uh, all those things, including the DNA, it was pretty strong circumstances. Uh, he did not. He also didn't put on an alibi defense. Um, and as I right. mentioned earlier, he had two witnesses. The second witness, Julia 
um, I can't remember her last name. She testified that she saw Rodney Reed talking to Stacy and HEB. Mm-hmm. Again, that's, you know, that's not proof of a relationship. I talked to a very good-looking man in the Rouses the other night. I wish I was in a relationship with that man, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I would, you know, I would have loved to be in a relationship with that man. But I just talked to him in the grocery store line because that's the kind of person I am. So, very true, very true. Um, pardon? I said very true, very true. I see your point. <laughs> so, um, and then he also, he had raised a challenge uh, regarding the uh, dismissal of two jurors who were mm-hmm. the only African-Americans on the panel. Uh, but the prosecutor when the jurors were dismissed they uh Lydia Clay Jackson and Calvin Garvey raised the Batson which basically saying the prosecutor is getting rid of all the white males or he's getting all rid of all the Hispanic females or he's getting ready rid of all the African American males on the right. jury or the jury panel and then the prosecutor has to raise a race-neutral explanation for uh, the dismissal of the jurors. And in this case, the prosecutor uh, struck the jurors. One had expressed a belief that capital punishment should be abolished and stated that he could never return a verdict in which the death penalty could be assessed. And the other one had significant reservations about participating on a death penalty jury. Right. Uh, he was also estranged, estranged from his children and had been jailed for failure to pay child support. So in those two cases, it had nothing to do with their race. Um, primarily, you have to be able, if you're going to seat on, be seated on a jury, you have to follow the law. And you have to be able to say, I can follow the law. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, had white jurors or Hispanic jurors answered in the same way that these individuals did, they would have been excused. They would have been dismissed as well. Because neither one of them, both of them exp- expressed reservations about being on a capital, verd- a capital jury. And it appears from what the appellate opinion said, they would not be able to even convict the person. Mm-hmm. Even though convicting them of a capital murder does not mean they're going to automatically get the death sentence. That's a different determination. So you don't want somebody on a jury who's going to say, this is a capital murder. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to, I'm just going to vote not guilty. You know, then you're going to have a hung yeah. jury. Yeah, you definitely don't want to see, you know, something like that happen because, you know, at that point, no justice is done at all. But, Lisa, right. Lisa we're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break. We're just about at halftime here, and then we're going to come back and relive the rest of the Rodney Reed trial. We're, 
You're listening to Clear and Convincing, and we will be right back, Lisa. All right, great. Thank you. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. We're back, Michael. Yes, ma'am. We are back. Okay. <laughs> I'm outside having my little break, dancing like Pitch you're Perfect. Right, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I hear that song, I that's what I think of. It's Pitch Perfect. <laughs> I I have to admit, I've never seen the movie, so. uh so, I would uh, hope not, I mean, since you're a man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's certain man, movies that men shouldn't watch. Yeah. But uh, although the, the male acapella groups are pretty cool, <laughs> I feel like it's Just probably saying. a lot like Glee. Probably a little bit, yeah. Except in college <laughs> with beer. <laughs> uh. So I guess we're up to the state post-conviction, and there were six writs, and I'm thinking this is what you're outlining here, correct? The uh, card type for relationship witnesses and so on and so forth. Let's go ahead and get into that. All right. Well, he did – while his direct appeal was pending, he filed a state writ alleging that uh, 
a report regarding beer cans that were found at the site body was found. A DNA report was not provided to the defense. And so uh, that one was returned to the trial court to develop. There was also some witnesses, uh, relationship witnesses, and those were members of his family that saw Stacy come by the house looking for him, rode around with her, smoking crack, that kind of stuff. And then there were two witnesses who had seen a car in the Bastrop High School parking lot around the time of the murders, but then they never saw the car again. And they claimed a Brady violation on that which is where the uh, state didn't provide that to this council to be used at trial. So, uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So one thing I want to get into while we're in the state post-conviction part, the car at the high school. Yes. was Jimmy's vehicle, correct? The truck? At the high school was Jimmy's vehicle, yes. Uh, Carol Stites, Stacy's mother, owned a silver or gray Ford Tempo. Okay. And as I recall, the witnesses claimed to have seen a vehicle like that in the high school parking lot. Uh, Okay. As it turned out, the vehicle that they saw belonged to an employee of the high school. Okay. Okay. And so, so they they didn't see Carol Stites' vehicle parked in the parking lot. So they saw a different our, vehicle. Doing our due diligence here on this uh, vehicle at the high school, I don't want to just go over it. Uh, there was definitely a problem raised, and it definitely raised my eyebrow, about the fact that the the defense didn't get to examine the truck, which was evidence because Jimmy sold it. Is that literally a problem like it sounds, or is that not a big deal? It would, it's, you would have to, you have to remember, Rodney Reed was not arrested for nearly a year. Uh, and a vehicle is not something that is easy to store in an evidence lockup. A vehicle is a large object. Some places can store them. Some places have warehousing and things like that, and they can store them. They can't really guarantee that they're maintained in pristine condition because if they're exposed to the elements, because they're outside or they're exposed to excessive heat. Um, But the primary reason it's not that big a deal is because the Department of Public Safety had done everything that could be done with the vehicle prior to releasing it back to Jimmy. And Texas, Texas is a state where you can shoot a repo man. Mm-hmm. And protect your vehicle, your property. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether they could have indefinitely kept his vehicle. 
I don't know whether the state courts would have even allowed that. What it had to do was file something for a return of his property. Right. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, again, Roddy Reed wasn't arrested for more than a year. You know, since he claimed to have been in a relationship with Stacy, he should have gone to the police immediately and said, I knew her. I was having a relationship with her. You need to look at her boyfriend. And, by the way, I want I want an expert to examine that truck right now. He didn't do that. Right. So, um, again, I don't think it's that big a deal because the, the Department of Public Safety had done everything that you can do with it. If his expert came to look at it after a year, what condition might it have been in? Uh-huh. Exposed to heat. I mean, anything on the outside of the truck probably would not be useful for any reason or any purpose because fingerprints, oils, blood, anything of that nature is going to degrade when exposed to the elements. That's true. uh, That's very true. I I don't think it's a big deal. They had, uh, they did have an expert who was able to perform her own testing and confirm the DPS lab results on the various DNA, uh, including those beer cans. Mm-hmm. So uh, having somebody that would be able to process that truck 11 months later, uh, I, I don't think would have had any impact or made any difference to his defense. You know, you can't That's use true. Jimmy's fingerprints in his own vehicle as proof that he killed Stacy. I see your point. I, I, I definitely <laughs> see your point there. <laughs> yeah. Now, and, they did say, you know, though, that there could have been stains in the floorboard of the vehicle, or there were stains in the floorboard of the there, vehicle? There was uh, several detectives and lab people observed a fluid that was alternately described as saliva, maybe mucus, on the floorboard in the front passenger side of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably where Stacy's body was placed after she was murdered. When you're strangled, right. you, you tend to salivate. And because right. your airway is cut off and your throat is closed, the saliva has nowhere to go, and so it builds up in the mouth. And at death, when everything relaxes, it tends to run out of the mouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it it ends up back in the sinuses and and all that stuff, but without being too graphic. But uh, it will tend to run out of the mouth because... In fact, I think you salivate all the time. It's just that when you're conscious and alive, you can swallow it. You're able to control it. <laughs> right, correct. Yeah. Right. But right. Um, so that was observed. They did not sample that. Mm-hmm. Possibly it's because they were, there was no reason not to think it belonged to Stacy. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to tell him anything except that it belonged to Stacy. So, mm-hmm. 
there's no need to take a sample and test it and say, yep, that belonged to Stacy. Since you can make right, that deduction, true. it's like, you know, it's like if you've been inside and you haven't had any windows, but you go outside and there are puddles on the ground and the pavement's wet and people are walking around drenched or with closed umbrellas that are dripping, you can infer that it rained. You don't have to see it rain. Right. You can see all those factors and say, oh, it rained. Right. Even uh, if the sun, you know, if you're that. in southeast Louisiana, it rains and then the sun's back out and the sky is blue and there's no evidence of rain except the wet streets. Very true. Very true. I see your point there. So what's the deal with the federal post-conviction? This is obviously, I guess, the next step of appeal before we can, you know, these are all steps of appeal before they can even request a, uh, before a death warrant can be put out, correct? Correct. That's correct. Um, He uh, Reed filed the federal habeas claim, I believe, while his other two claims were still pending. I believe the first one was dismissed uh, or denied. The second one was dismissed as abusive. And I believe the third one was also dismissed as abusive. Um, Okay. And uh, the federal, he filed it I believe in 2005, they returned it to state court for evidentiary hearings. So there were, there was a round of hearings in 2001. There was another round of hearings in 2006. And that was, that went back to the federal court. It was six additional years before the magistrate judge rendered an opinion Basically, Reed presented all of the issues that he had presented in his state writs up until that time of the federal writ. And he presented the beer cans. He presented the relationships. He presented alternate suspects of Jimmy Fennell and David Lawhon. He presented the Martha Barnett and Mary Blackwell and Stephen King, Kang, uh, allegations, uh, which were Brady claims. Apparently, Martha Barnett claimed to have seen Fennell and Stacy at 5 o'clock in Page, Texas, and then uh, told an attorney, Stephen King, about it almost a year later. And then he said he tried to tell the prosecutor about it during Reed's trial, and the prosecutor blew him off. And he didn't do anything except be upset that the prosecutor would blow him off. And Mary Blackwell claimed that she was in a, a class for law enforcement training with uh, Fennell and that he said he would strangle his girlfriend with a belt if he caught her cheating. She's also one of the people that made allegations of abuse uh, by Fennell towards Stacy. Um, but she didn't report any of her beliefs or claims 
until after Reed had already been convicted. She reported it to one of his investigators, and instead of going to his defense attorneys and saying, this witness, she's got great information, he went and wrote a memo and sent it to the DA. Which, to me, still doesn't make a damn bit of sense. Except that Reed had already been convicted and sentenced to death, and he didn't think there was anything they could do with it. So he tried to set up a Brady claim by, quote, reporting it to the prosecution. Yeah, I see your point. I see your point that it don't make no sense. Now, the beer cans, uh, what's the story on that? Like, for everybody that don't know about the beer cans, what's the story on the beer cans? During the trial, uh, a report was issued by DPS reporting HLA-DQ Alpha results from two beer cans that were found near where Stacy's body was found. Reed's people claim that the beer cans looked new and they were pristine. Law enforcement people say they were dusty, they were faded, they had compressed needles underneath, and one of them had pine needles on top. So the condition of the beer cans is a matter of still in dispute. But on the HLA DQ Alpha results, Stacy, Ed Salmella, and David Hall could not be excluded. So Reed's allegedly found this report going through materials pending during the pending uh, pending habeas claim, state habeas claim, and you know his attorneys had never gotten it, so they raised the Brady claim. The problem with that was that Reed had his own expert to examine all the DNA evidence. And she did examine those beer cans, and she did HLA-DQ alpha testing. She got the same results that the DPS lab got. And then I presume hoping to tie one person to the beer cans, she went further and did polymarker testing, which is a bit more sensitive. It looks at another another area on the DNA chain. Um, and the polymarker testings excluded Hall, Salmella, and Stacy. Mm-hmm. So essentially, Reed's experts, expert witness eliminated the beer cans as relevant evidence in the murder case. Mm-hmm. Because she excluded Hall, who was a Giddings police officer with Jimmy Snell, Ed Salmella, who was a Bastrop City detective who had worked on the case during the initial stages, and Stacy Stites. Now, something else that I want to bring up. It makes absolutely no sense that, first of all, Stacy would have had to have been alive. She, Ed Salmella, and Dave Hall were drinking from a beer can. There's another Mm -hmm. beer can that doesn't tie to anybody, a second beer can, 
but she, Ed Salmella, and Dave Hall are drinking from one beer can and then toss it aside and then Ed and David Hall kill her and leave her body. Again, this another thing, it doesn't make sense. Right. And if the if the if one of the donors on the beer can is female and the other donor is male, and then there's a third donor, what are those three people doing out there drinking from a beer can? Right. I mean, that's one of those things, it makes no sense. They're still trying to argue the beer can ties Dave Hall, but it doesn't. He was eliminated before the trial. Right. And, you know, he's been eliminated. Again, if he's helping Fennell dump a body, the last thing he's going to be doing is putting his DNA on a beer can and dumping it at the scene. He's going to know better than anybody not to. Correct. So, um, again, you know, it, it just it's it's one of those things that doesn't make any sense. And they portray the beer cans as being relevant and proving something when they never did. Because right. before the trial ever happened, Reed's expert got the same results from HLADQ Alpha. And then went a step further and eliminated everybody and came up with unknown DNA on, you know, an unknown mixture of three people on a beer can out in the country on the side of the road. I mean, you know, I don't think it's unusual to find a beer can out on the side of the road out in the country. I used to see them all the time on Mount City Road driving home from Memphis. Yeah, you know how I, I used to find them in my yard all the time. <laughs> it's Arkansas. You live in New Orleans. I'm pretty sure beer cans are the norm. I lived, there. I lived in Marion, Arkansas, for nine years, and I worked in yeah, Memphis. Beer cans were the norm there. <laughs> yeah. So, oh yeah, there. I mean, here, God, we can't keep people from peeing on the street because we let them drink on the street. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Half so, the least resistance, duh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, the beer cans. It was alleged to be a Brady violation, and it just, it just didn't measure up because in order for it to be a Brady violation, Reed's counsel would have had to ignore and not call their expert, and then present something that they knew was incomplete to the court and to the jury. Mm-hmm. And even though I believe that was the gist of either Calvin Garvey or Lydia Clay Jackson's testimony at the 2006 hearings, I don't think that they really seriously would have openly misrepresented things. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right. And if they would, it's kind of sad. Um, it's a sad commentary on the system that defense attorneys would misrepresent evidence deliberately. 
Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and completely, completely sad that you know, especially if the client were guilty, if it were to work and get the client off, completely unacceptable. You know, you got to right. think they can at least ethics violations on in that case. Right. That's a very so, what's so, the deal on the attempts to reopen the case? After the magistrate issued his uh, recommendations and the judge adopted them, Reed's attorneys filed requests to reopen and requests for DNA testing. Um, they had gotten an, a declaration from Dr. Bayardo. Uh, criticizing the prosecution's representations about time of death at trial and saying, well, there really wasn't a sexual assault and that uh, his, I think his opinion that uh, the DNA was deposited recently was not what he really meant. Right. And, of course, the federal the, the federal court was no more receptive to that than the state court would have been. Um, You know, he had a a forensic pathology expert. His forensic pathology expert criticized the time of death findings based on incomplete information. And so they, the federal court thought it was kind of odd that now the original medical examiner is going to come in and say, oh, wait, I know the real time of death was midnight or 11 o'clock. I think personally, my opinion, Rodney Reed's attorneys think that if they move the time of death back, the farther back they move it, the more plausible it becomes for Jimmy Finnell to have done it, to have committed the murder. And they think that it's going to give him more time to get from Bastrop back to Giddings. But what they forget is that the truck, I think the earliest time the truck could have been left in the parking lot at the high school was around 4.30 on the morning of April 23rd. And that's only giving that's only an extra hour, perhaps, to still go 35 miles on foot back to Giddings because he can't leave the truck any earlier than 430 because it would have been seen and found earlier than 523 right 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 so then we after we fail to reopen the case we go to the 5th Circuit Court of Appeals yes and and what that happened? under well under yeah under the um, AEDPA, which governs federal habeas review, um, I think it was enacted in 1996. Ironically, um, you don't get an automatic appeal to the appellate court. You basically have to get a certificate of appealability either at the district court level or at the appellate level. 
So basically what Reed was doing was requesting a certificate of appealability to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit denied that. Um, They basically didn't find any error with the district court's disposition of the claims. Um, You know, I think we talked about this with Liddell Lee. On a state case in federal court, federal court has to, it's kind of limited. They can only, they have to give deference to the state court decisions unless the decision is an unreasonable application of law, federal or state, or uh, the facts are unreasonable. It's an unreasonable interpretation of the facts in the case. They're not deciding guilt or innocence. Um, They're not really even deciding sufficiency of the evidence. They're determining whether or not a violation of federal or constitutional law occurred at the trial court level. Right, right. So, obviously, after his... Go ahead. uh, And, you know, they also... uh, Reed's also been trying, continues to try to establish the relationship. Because they really need to establish the relationship in order to explain his DNA or the presence of his DNA. Right. And, um, again, they, they didn't do it. The, the witnesses, you know, having witnesses say, I saw him talking to her. Uh, I saw her come looking for him at his mama's house or my house. That's not really a, a that's not a strong connection. And I think most importantly, he hasn't produced a witness that saw them together on late Sunday night, early Monday morning when he claims to have seen her last in their, quote, relationship. Right, right. So next we have the uh, execution warrant, the uh, request for execution date. Is this where the execution warrant signed? Yeah, well, what happens in Texas is the state files a request for an execution date the trial court holds a hearing and then sets the execution date. Um, it has to be, you know, they, they have to do it a certain period of time prior to the date to give the inmate a chance to do whatever he needs to do administratively or challenging the method of execution challenging the drugs, whatever, you know, whatever claims he wants to make. Um, And the state filed their request on the day of that hearing. The defense filed a request in the state court for the first time since 1999 for DNA testing. And requested a hearing on that. Right. In lieu of this request for the execution date. Mm-hmm. And again, this is my opinion, but everything that the 
the defense has done to date appears to be merely a means of gaining years. I don't believe that they know mm-hmm. that they have any merit to any of their claims, and I don't believe that they really believe that the claims have any merit. And mm-hmm. some of them they know not to have merit, such as the beer cans. And Barnett and Kang and Martha Blackwell. And yet they continue to raise these claims as though they've never been raised before and asking the courts to reconsider them as though there's new evidence that supports them. Right. So, um, but the judge ended up denying. He set a request. He did set the execution date. Mm-hmm. And he denied the request for DNA testing after holding a hearing. But when he re- denied the request for DNA testing, he reset the execution date and pushed it back another 60 days. It was originally scheduled for January of 2015, and he pushed it back to, I believe it was March. Mm-hmm. And so Reed's counsel filed an appeal of the DNA testing request at the Court of Criminal Appeals. And then on February 15th or 16th, the execution date set for March, they filed a seventh writ with new relationship witnesses that were developed in 2014 when mm-hmm. A&E did Dead Man Walking, Dead Man Talking. And um, with new uh, opinions from Michael Bodden, Werner Spitz, and I can't remember the other ex- uh, medical examiner, who are basically now, they're defense medical examiners. They're okay. all, they've all retired. Um they no longer work for City of New York or New York State Police or State of Florida or wherever they work, Detroit. Um, you know, they're now consultants and they make a lot of money with private consulting and the only people that can pay that money are defense attorneys or groups like Innocence Project. Right. And so they they came in and they put the time of death at midnight. Um, mm-hmm. It's so kind of funny. I watched Michael Bodden's testimony at the hearings in October, and I still can't figure out the lividity pattern that he's talking about. And I've watched the testimony so three times. <laughs> we're into the state post-conviction now, correct? Right. Yeah, that's the seventh so we're in the Yeah, okay. that's the okay, seventh yeah. writ. And so now then they're calling in... their... So now they're trying to call the timeline into question. Correct, correct. And what a lot of people, uh, advocates for Reed, don't understand, they say 
Michael Bodden's testimony is, quote, evidence. It's proof. It's not. It's an opinion of an expert mm-hmm. that a jury at a trial could choose to believe or not believe. Um, right. And, you know, when you when you watch Michael Bodden's testimony at this hearing in October, which was actually on the 8th writ, not the 7th writ, mm-hmm. um, his findings are based on lividity, which was not measured by the DPS crime lab at the scene. In other words, nobody pressed on the spot and said it blanches with pr- pressure or it's fixed. Um, right. I believe that I believe that the that what he's identifying as lividity on the front torso and her face was actually sunburned because her body was in direct sunlight from the time the sun rose on April 23rd until around three three thirty four o'clock when uh, a deputy put a blanket over her because of a chopper was circling over her head, a news chopper. Right. Um, so I think that sunburn, not fixed lividity. If it's not fixed lividity, then you can't use it to estimate time of death. Um, and another thing with Michael Bodden is lividity is the least reliable factor on which to try to make an estimate of time of death. Right. Because lividity is the is the pooling of the blood as it settles with gravity, basically. It's a very good indicator of whether a body has been in the same position since death or whether it's been moved. But it's not a good it's not a good factor to try to judge time because it can set in two hours. It can take five hours to set, depending on weather conditions. Right. Um, if you have a body that's that's you know been in a body of water, you're not going to have a lividity anywhere because the the buoyancy is going to prevent the blood from really settling. You might have some, you know, you might have some coloration, but it's not going to set because also the liquid ingested is going to get into the system. Um, But it's not a good, it's not a good reliable factor to use to determine a time of death. And he's saying before midnight, circumstances under which her body was found with the, with the, she had her socks on. She had one tennis shoe on. The other tennis shoe was found in the truck. One of her earrings was found in the truck. She had her work pants on. She had her T-shirt that she wore to work, presumably on. She had her work shirt in the truck, as well as her back brace. And she had put her knee brace on and put tissue between the metal portion and her skin. Um, I have it on good authority that you're not going to get a knee brace on an uncooperative or dead body. 
right. from people who, who have worn knee braces. Also, mm-hmm. you don't sleep in them except after a surgery, like a, a repairing a tear of the meniscus or ACL. You have, uh-huh. There is a brace that you have to wear 24-7, but it's not the knee brace with the metal pieces and, and all that stuff. It's a different brace. To keep the knee stable, and what Stacy okay. was wearing was was a knee brace with the metal pieces that you take on and off, kind of like a boot. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. when you break uh, a foot or or a, uh, have a ligament tear or something. Um, and she was, like I said, she was wearing her work pants. Again, had Fennell done this before midnight because she wasn't wearing this uniform at midnight, he would have had to get the knee brace on, put the padding in, get her pants on, break the zipper, get her underwear on, and pull them down over her hips. Uh, remember to bring the work shirt, the shirt, the back brace, the cup that she used out to the car. He would have had to put one earring in the truck, and remember to bring one tennis shoe and throw it in the truck? Right. I, I mean, it's the a lot of things, and, and somebody trying to stage that is going to forget something that should have been there. Right. Um, right. Also, one of the allegations made by Lydia Clay Jackson was that, well, the the police the only information, the only person they ever asked about the truck was Jimmy Fennell. Uh-huh. And so, you know, he was able to direct their investigation. Well, first of all, you are not going to know. You couldn't look at my car and say, this is not supposed to be there. This should have been there. I don't know where that came from because you've never seen my car. Right. I, couldn't, I couldn't look at your vehicle and say what belongs and what doesn't because I've never seen your vehicle. Even if I've ridden in your vehicle once and you've ridden in mine once, you still probably wouldn't have any intimate knowledge of the vehicle. My sister yeah, and I could not say what's up with either vehicle, you know, her, her with mine or me with hers because I'm not in her vehicle every day. I don't know what belongs and what's right. out of place. So the truck belonged to Jimmy Fennell, and he shared it with Stacy. They're the only two people that anybody could ever get any information from. And frankly, the same goes with the apartment and her schedule. I mean, her mother knew some things, but Jimmy lived with her. They didn't have another roommate. So he's the only one that can say when she would have left for work, you know, routinely. And that was what he said. She would leave for work about 2.45, 3 o'clock in the morning. She was scheduled to be there at 3.30. If she was scheduled to be there at 4, she'd leave at 3.30. It's about 35-minute drive, you know, from getting to Bastrop at that time of night. He's the only person that they could ask. Unfortunately, you know, when you live with somebody, they're your alibi. 
and they're the only ones that know where you're supposed to be and when you're supposed to be there. So faulting the police for getting their information from the only source kind of disingenuous to me. Because mm-hmm. who else could they have asked? Very true. You know? Very true. But that, and that's the thing with the defense bar is they'll criticize police for things like that, and I don't think they really think. Well, who who else would the police ask about Jimmy's truck but Jimmy or Stacy? Right. If the situation reverses, something had happened to Jimmy. Stacy would have been the only person that could have said what belonged in the truck or what didn't. Right. Absolutely. So now we're up to where we're we're pretty much up to today. We're at the Supreme Court. Uh, request to review Texas's DNA statute. So what's their latest file? Actually, there was an eighth writ filed Uh uh, claiming that Curtis Davis um, was with Jimmy Finnell while Stacy was missing prior to her body being found. And during that time, Jimmy Finnell made a statement to him that he should have gotten up and taken Stacy to work, but he'd been out drinking beer after a baseball practice, and he didn't feel like getting up. That writ was actually returned to the trial court for hearings, which were held in October. Uh-huh. And the trial court denied relief because Curtis Davis's testimony was not his personal knowledge. I know Jimmy lied because I was out drinking beer with him. And he didn't go home until 10 o'clock. And he was in a bad mood, and he had been bitching and moaning about Stacy all night when he went home. That wasn't mm-hmm. what Curtis Davis was saying. What Curtis Davis was saying was, as I recall the conversation, he was drinking beer after baseball practice, I don't know what time he got home because I don't think he told me what time he got home. I'm assuming it was 10 to 11 because my granddaughter's in the same league and that's what time we get home. So he didn't really know what time Jimmy Finnell got home and what time he didn't get home from his own personal knowledge. Um, You have to be real careful with hearsay because when it's hearsay, it's not based on personal knowledge. The strongest evidence would be based on personal knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if Curtis Davis had actually been out with Jimmy Finnell drinking and knew they got home at 10 o'clock and knew Jimmy was in a foul mood, that would have been strong evidence for Rodney Reed. It wasn't. And it's an example, and when I've spoken with next week's guest, um, Chief Deputy Rod Englert, I have said several times, defense attorneys can make something out of nothing. And that's what they did with Curtis Davis. That he made a statement that impeached Jimmy Finnell's trial testimony. Jimmy Finnell lied, therefore Jimmy Finnell was guilty. 
And in reality, what they presented did not impeach Jimmy Fennell's trial testimony, which was corroborated by Stacy's mother, Carol, who saw Jimmy come home at about 8 o'clock on the night of April 22nd. So, uh, Rodney Reed has filed. Now, the, the judge, the trial court judge denied relief. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals more or less has a final say on that. And um, uh, we did file objections to the trial court findings, which were basically that, you know, there was no Brady violation. The prosecutors were not under duty, nor was Curtis Davis under any duty to report Fennell's statement to law enforcement. Uh, the defense could have discovered Davis's connection to Jimmy Fennell and talked to him themselves and perhaps discovered this statement. Um, but it wouldn't have necessarily, even if they had discovered the statement, it wouldn't have necessarily done them any good. If they asked Jimmy Fennell about it and he was able to explain, well, he misunderstood. I said I had a beer when I got home. Yeah, right. while I was in while I was watching TV, then Curtis Davis's testimony would no longer be uh, allowed because Fennell's explaining what he said. He's not denying making a statement. Um, you know, he's saying I I did make a statement, but this is what I said. He misunderstood me. Okay. And then okay. there would be no way Curtis Davis could testify. Plus, again, Curtis Davis couldn't have testified because it was hearsay. It wasn't, I was out drinking with him, we got home at 10 o'clock, and Jimmy was in a foul mood all night. It was, you know, he told me, I don't know what time, I'm assuming what time. And that was really what was fatal to them, was that Curtis Davis was assuming a time. And they don't right. seem to understand that. So, right. But um, now the request to what basically what Reed's attorneys want the, the Supreme Court to do is to find the criminal court of criminal appeals application in his case of the DNA statute in Texas as uh, improper. Um, so that the basically the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals would have to grant additional DNA testing. Now, another right. thing that Reed's advocates will not say and will not recognize is that in July of 2014, uh, the state and Reed's attorneys did agree to limited testing of swabs from evidence already in possession of the Texas DPS. That testing, in addition to confirming the swabs from Stacy's body and confirming that they were Reed's DNA, they found on two swabs from 
Stacy's pants that were on her body when it was found and the back brace that was in her truck, they found Rod, Rodney Reed's DNA. That ties him to the truck as well as to Stacy's body on April 23rd, 1996. So basically, game, set, match. Game, set, match, but they're like Jimmy Connors or I think John McEnroe. They're arguing with the uh, line judge. And they're going to continue arguing with the line judge because they they just can't accept that he is guilty. And there's no room for reasonable right. doubt. I mean, <clears throat> reasonable doubt's no longer applicable, as we discussed. Right, reasonable doubt ends once you're convicted. When yeah, you're convicted, I mean, you're absolutely. guilty. At this and, point, um, all he's got to be hoping for is a commute to life sentence. And I, you know, I really don't think that, I don't think he's going to do that because he's thinking he's going to beat the system. And his family's thinking they're going to beat the system. And his attorneys think they're going to beat the system. Right. The most he can hope for is probably maybe another two years. Uh, it's unlikely, it's very unlikely that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to even grant Reed's writ. Right. Because what, whereas his attorneys don't agree with the findings on the statutory issues, the biggest hurdle for Reed is overcoming the fact that his DNA is all over the place and he has provided no credible, reliable evidence to explain how it got there, but that he raped and murdered Stacy Stites. He's provided no credible, reliable evidence that Jimmy Fennell killed Stacy. He's nothing. It's nothing but innuendo, myth, lies about a secret relationship. And you know, again, if the secret relationship didn't exist, Jimmy Finnell had no motive to kill Stacy. Right. Um, you know, like I said, myths and lies about abuse and uh, claims that well, what he did in 2007 proves he could do. You know, he could murder Stacy, but yet Reed's rapes between 1987 and 1995 mean nothing to them. They don't consider him because he was never convicted. Well, Fennell was only convicted of one sexual charge. Mm-hmm. Other, the other women that accused him, he was never convicted of any of those charges. So they really right. got one, you know, one actual conviction to hang their ass on. And again, because the women did testify and were cross-examined 
during the penalty phase of Reed's trial, those rape cases are fair game. I think to right. anyone outside outside a jury box or a jury room considering the case, those rapes are, are fair game. And they're closer in time to Stacy's murder. Because the first right. one that we know about was 1987. And ironically or not, that victim was also white. And when Reed was initially questioned... He said, I never heard of her, don't know her, never saw her before in my life. But when DNA evidence placed his blood at her house, or, you know, blood evidence, I don't know whether it was DNA or what, it was just blood evidence, because he, he broke it in and cut his hand. Then he said we were involved in a secret affair. Ah. And he was acquitted on that charge, I think, I, I think we discussed it before. The defense really did a number on the girl during her testimony. And because they were going with a consent defense, it made it look like she was just saying she was raped, you know, because he would go out with her or whatever. Um, and I don't think that the prosecutor really adequately address that. As I understand it, she had been beaten pretty severely. As a prosecutor, I would have taken a picture of her in the hospital with bite marks and black eyes and bruises and held it up to the jury and said, does that look consensual to you? And then left it at that. That would have been the last thing I'd say, is show them that picture and say, does that look consensual to you? Right. Absolutely. And maybe they might have convicted him. I don't know. But he can't claim a consensual relationship with a 12-year-old because he was in his 20s. Yeah, absolutely. At the time of her rape. Um, And, you know, I know if if he were charged... I mean, if they were to try to bring him to trial for Vivian, he's going to claim a consensual relationship with her. Right. And Linda Schluter. You know, he's going to try and claim a consensual relationship with her. That was the girl that he attempted to abduct and rape six months after he killed Stacy. At 3 a.m. in the same part of town. He convinced her to give him a ride. Right, right. Um, Personally, I think think Stacy just forgot to lock her truck and stopped along the way, and he was able to get the door open and pull her out of the truck and took her someplace, raped her, strangled her to death, put her in the truck drove her out to the country, dumped her body, parked the truck at the high school and walked away and thought he would never be caught. So. Very true, very true. Well, Lisa, we got about three minutes left here. Let's go ahead and preview next week before we get out of here. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to Clear and Convincing tonight. 
Uh, I'm Lisa O'Brien and my co-host, Michael Cornahan. Appreciate your taking the time. If you missed anything, we're archived, so you can always go back and listen again. Um, if you like the show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or at our blog, clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. We hope you'll join us next week for an interview with Rod Englert. Uh, Mr. Engler is a 56-year veteran of law enforcement and an expert in crime scene reconstruction and blood spatter analysis. He's worked on the O.J. Simpson case, Robert Blake, uh, Selena, which we're approaching a, uh, an anniversary for Selena. Um, uh, he's worked on a lot of high profile, but he's also worked on cases we've never heard of. And tomorrow night, we're going to be discuss. I mean, next Tuesday night, excuse me, people, we're going to be discussing some of those cases with Mr. Engler. And he is just great. He wrote a great book, um, Blood Secrets. And uh, you can find it on Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I'd recommend, I would recommend, highly recommend it. It's a great book, Blood Secrets, Chronicles of a Crime Scene Reconstructionist. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Absolutely. I can't wait for that episode. And I can't wait to see you next week. I hope you and everybody else in the listening audience has an amazing week. And uh, that's pretty much it for me, Lisa. You got anything else? No, I think we're, I think we're pretty much done. Um, I am keeping an eye on that Supreme Court. So if there's anything new on Rodney Reed, I'll let you know. Definitely, definitely. Well, for Lisa O'Brien, I'm Michael Carnahan, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to turn out the lights on Rodney Reed. We'll see you next week. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night. The pie.